Welcome to the Criswell College Chapel Podcast. Throughout each semester, the entire campus gathers for worship through song and a biblical, challenging, and encouraging message. Speakers include pastors, professors, and local business and nonprofit leaders. At Criswell, we believe spiritual life is vital for everyone, and that is why Criswell's goal in chapel services is to emphasize loving the Lord with all our heart, all our mind, and all our strength. We cultivate leaders who are ambassadors, cultivators, peacemakers, problem solvers, and professionals. While chapel services are tailored to students, we're encouraged by all our guest speakers by knowing that the practicality of what is being spoken is for everyone. To learn more about Criswell College, visit criswell.edu. Thank you for joining us. Today, we'll be hearing from Dr. Katie McCoy. Katie McCoy serves as Director of the Women's Ministry at Texas Baptist. She holds a PhD in Systematic Theology from Southwestern Seminary, where she served on the faculty for five years. Katie's research includes the patterns of justice for women in Old Testament laws, as well as the intersection of theology, gender, and women's studies. She is the author of To Be a Woman, The Confusion Over Female Identity and How Christians Can Respond, and co-author of Humanity, part of the Theology for the People of God series. Katie is a political news junkie and a frequent contributor to World Radio's Culture Friday. Without further ado, Dr. Katie McCoy. Good morning, good morning. At the end of your life, the only thing that's going to matter about you is how you answered one question. This one question is not only going to be the balance and the measure of what you did with your time on earth, but it's actually going to determine the trajectory of everything that you do now. That question is this, what is your aim? Whether you realize it or not, you have an aim, and it is driving you. It is the driving force in your soul, because see, whatever you're aiming for, it's what you're depending on. So have you ever asked yourself, what is your aim? What are you aiming your life at and towards? It's a joy to be with you this morning. Thank you to Dr. Creamer, to Louise for this invitation. And since being in your season of life, I have observed something about myself and pretty much every other person on the planet. We're all aiming at something. And whatever it is for you, whatever you're aiming at to find is underneath it, things like meaning and significance and and worth. And you can find that, or attempt to find that, in several different sources. It can be popularity, prestige, perfection, pleasure. See, we protect it. If we feel like we are going to lose it, we feel like we're going to lose everything that we are. Some of those aims we can know and identify pretty easily. You know, achievement, money, sex, partying. But usually, usually, that's actually just a symptom. That's something that is on the surface. What's really driving you is a lot deeper. Because, see, the real aim that you have is why you do what you do. Have you ever asked yourself this? All your motives, all your issues, even the struggle with sin that you have, usually it is a result of aiming at something that you think is going to fulfill you, going to confer worth, the payoff that you think you're getting from it. So here's a few aims that we all typically can fall into. Status, admiration, 
Security, certainty, control, perfection, acceptance, approval. Maybe it's power. Maybe it's the absence of conflict. You just want stress-free life. Maybe it's harmony, an inner sense of harmony. Maybe you're an experience junkie. Maybe you really want to have a sense that you are unique, that you're whole, that you're worthy, that you're loved. See, we are all wired to crave validation and to find it in something or someone that we consider worthy, and not just worthy, weighty. We instinctively try to anchor our worth in something outside of ourselves, and we are orienting or fashioning our lives around it and putting the full weight of who we are in it. What is your aim? The easy way to find out, by the way, is the direction that your feet are pointed towards. Where you aim is where you go. It's your trajectory. It's the predictor of where you're headed. And tucked in a very familiar book of the Bible, the Apostle Paul shares his aim. And you can find it in Philippians 3, verse 10. We're going to do kind of a flyover of the whole book because it's a short letter. But in Philippians 3, verse 10, Paul says his aim. He says, my goal or my aim is to know him, Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Now that might seem, especially if you grew up in church, to be kind of like a Sunday school uh, throwaway line, like this is what I'm supposed to be aiming my life towards. The answer is Jesus, right? But what I want you to discover is something that has the power to change the whole course of your life. Because see, By making knowing Christ his aim, Paul was able to avoid and overcome a lot of the things that absolutely destroy us. Let's look at a few. Things that might have caused him to sink into despair or distraction or be derailed. Here's one in chapter 1. Paul's aim enabled him not to be distracted or derailed by injustice. So in chapter 1, Paul is opening up his letter by explaining to people that he is in prison. And he's in prison in Rome. Put a pin in that. We're going to come back to why that's important, that he's in Rome. And he describes how, you know, hey, here I am sitting in this jail, but it's actually all working out. It's working out for good because now, see, there are people who were very hesitant to share the gospel. They were very intimidated about the idea, not just because, will this person like me when I share the gospel, but am I going to be thrown in jail because of it? And the fact that I'm sitting here in jail has made them super bold. They are now very bold to share the gospel. But Paul takes it even a step further. He says, not only that, but there are actually people who are preaching Christ in order to somehow stick it to me. In verse 15, he says there are people preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry. Who are they envious of and having a rivalry rivalry towards? Paul. So Paul is actually saying, I'm sitting in this jail, and here's how all of these people don't even know that they are working towards what I'm aiming for. 
Not only are some of them bold to share the gospel, but these ones over here who are actually sharing the gospel out of trying to make me feel like I'm being kicked while I'm down, they're accomplishing my aim too. See, Paul was not derailed by injustice because he understood that the God who is giving him his mission to know him, to be uh, knowing the fellowship of his sufferings, that all of Paul's purpose was actually being accomplished when other people were mistreating him. He even says in verse 18, he goes, what does it matter? It's like he's saying, who cares? Who cares why they're preaching Christ? If they're preaching him out of selfish ambition and not sincerity, who even cares? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Keep in mind, he's writing from prison. And, and by the way, prison was basically just a hole in the wall. You were dependent on other people to bring you food. There was no light definitely no medical care. He's saying this from the worst of worst conditions. Paul, by the way, was a Roman citizen. He had all the rights and privileges of a Roman citizen. And not only that, but the Holy Spirit had set apart Paul to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So here's Paul actually rejoicing in all of this injustice, things that typically, I know for me, would cause me to be pretty bitter. But see, for Paul, his aim changed his whole perspective. As long as Jesus was the one getting the attention, it didn't matter who delivered the message. And his aim kept him from being derailed when others tried to damage him. Here's another one. Paul's aim, it protected him from being defeated by his past. It empowered him to move forward. In Philippians 3, he describes how he doesn't consider himself to have arrived. He knows he's not perfect. He knows he has not made it to the finish line of his life. But then he also says in verse 13, one thing he does do is to forget what is behind and to reach forward to what is ahead. And then in verse 15, he even says, this is a mark of maturity. It's not a mark of Christian maturity to be beating yourself up by the sins that Jesus forgave you for. It's a mark of maturity to forget what is behind and reach forward to what is ahead. But see, it gets even more interesting here because before Paul was Paul, he was Saul. And Saul, as you already know, was a religious zealot before Jesus saved him. He persecuted some of the earliest Christians with things like public executions. He helped facilitate them dragging men and women out of their homes, separating them from their children, throwing them in prison. Today, we might actually call him a religious terrorist. Not because he actually killed anybody, but he was the one pulling the strings behind the scenes. He had a reputation throughout the entire region. And, and this is before instantaneous communication, right? There is no social media. There is no mass media. Nobody was live streaming Saul's persecution of the church. He was just that formidable that his reputation spread throughout an entire region. How did he come back from that? How did that not just derail him and feel absolutely defeated? Like, how can he even stand up under the guilt of what he has done? The shame 
Perhaps he even saw some of the people or the children of the people who were affected by the choices that he made before he was a Christian. He didn't find it in escaping. He didn't find it in not facing his guilt. No, see, Paul was able to face the worst of himself and who he was because he knew Jesus had already paid for it. His aim to know Christ, it even changed how he saw his own history. His own autobiography was completely turned up on its head. Forgetting what is behind. What does it mean to forget what is behind? Because here's the reality. If we all had time to exchange each other's stories, we've all got things that we wish we hadn't done that we, we wish we could forget. To forget doesn't mean, oh, I just can never remember it anymore. No, to forget means it doesn't have control over you anymore. It no longer gets to call the shots in your life. It no longer gets to name you. And Paul was saying, I have forgotten, I have chosen not to allow this stuff in my past to have power over me anymore. Why? Is this some kind of positive thinking? No, it's that Jesus paid it all. So it's able to change his aim. And see, before Paul became Paul and he was Saul, he was a reformer. He was a purist. He was someone who confronted people with what he believed was wrong. And then after Jesus got a hold of his life, he was still a reformer, a purist, someone who confronted people with what was wrong. The things in your life that you have done, that you are most ashamed of, are the very places the Lord wants to begin and enter into, completely transform, and turn into a message and a vehicle for his kingdom. Nothing is wasted if, if you have the right aim. Because see, when you know Christ, it not only propels you forward, it protects you from being paralyzed from your past. Next one. Paul's aim enabled him not to be distracted by other aims. And this is also in chapter 3. So Paul, in the beginning part of chapter 3, he's talking about essentially his, uh, his status sheet, his CV, his resume. He has all the status and power and legitimacy and acceptance. He has all the things that from the outside in would make him a super Christian celebrity. But he says about them in verse 7, all that was a gain to me I have considered lost because of Christ. He even says he considers it worthless. That is a very sanitized version of saying something that is effectively human waste. That's, a, that's what that term is, is actually meaning. So what Paul is saying is, all these things that people think are so special about me, I would flush them down the toilet compared to knowing Christ. And this is all because of Paul's aim. This type of knowing Jesus, it's not like knowing facts, it's that relational knowing, the kind of knowing that changes you from the inside out. And this is what Paul was made for. This is why he was on earth. This is what you were made for. This is why you are on earth. Before you talk about what you're going to do, no, no, who are you going to know? 
What is your aim? This is the important thing about you. Jared Morgenstern, has anybody heard that name? Didn't think so. Jared Morgenstern is someone you probably haven't heard of, but you have been affected by pretty much every day of your life. Jared Morgenstern is an Ivy League grad, and he started on the ground floor of Facebook back when it was called The Facebook. You probably weren't even alive. Were you even alive then? Who knows? But his claim to fame was that he pitched to Mark Zuckerberg the concept of the like button. And since then, when Facebook incorporated the like button, every other social media platform has incorporated a way for people to give some kind of feedback. And not just feedback, but some type of signal of approval or acceptance or agreement. Well, Jared Morgenstern, when he talked about they launched the like button in 2009, he said shortly thereafter, he looked around, he saw people on Facebook hitting like, 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 and he goes, what have we done? What have we done? Because see, he saw people living for the small approval, the little micro dopamine hits of other people that they don't even know or care about, but they were so dependent on and becoming enslaved to their approval that it was absolutely consuming. And then, Jared Morgenstern fell into a very deep depression. This was, this was like a cataclysmic thing for his life because this was the kind of thing where everything he was leaning on and living for, his whole purpose, just kind of pulled the rug out from under him. Some of you know what that's like, and it's kind of scary. Because, see, Jared looked at all of his life choices and realized how much of them were driven by a like button of life. Other people approving of him. Other people agreeing with him. Other people accepting him. And he realized how empty it was. Because, see, his aim, his aim was achievement, and he could never get enough achievement. His aim was approval, and he could never get enough approval. Here's one of the most innovative minds, highly educated, wealthy, successful, many times over, and he is proving and demonstrating exactly what Paul is saying here in Philippians. By the way, don't believe for a second that the scripture is not for your real life. This is for the deepest parts of you. This is for the healing of the hidden parts of you that are spiritually and emotionally and relationally and psychologically affected by our fallen world and even our sinful selves. See, Jesus frees us from being consumed by lesser aims because mark it down, they will consume you. They will make you their slave. And Jesus, who comes to set us free, not only from our sin, but from the need to find validation in anything and everything that can and will fail us. And I have a question for you. Who would you be if you were that free? How bold would you be if you were that free? I think I know who you would be without even knowing you. You would be everything that God intended when he dreamt you up. You would be everything that God imagined when he thought you up. And it can happen in your life if you make knowing him your aim.
Last one. Paul's aim, to know Christ. It enabled him not to be defined by his circumstances. And we see this in Philippians 4. This is some of the most familiar passages of Scripture that we find in this chapter. And here Paul says in Philippians 4, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little. I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret to being content. See, when you're content, you are unshaken by what is external. Doesn't mean you're in some kind of like Buddhist Zen place. You're still a human being. It means that it doesn't have the power to rock you to your core. It's not a lack of want. It's not a lack of desire. It is bringing all of your wants and all of your desires in service to Christ. And as a result, being independent from everything that is happening around you. See, this creates spiritual and emotional resilience. It keeps the situations in your life that are disappointing to you from absolutely destroying you. And it empowers you to bounce back when life doesn't go as you dreamed, hoped, or planned. And as much as it pains me to tell you this, there are things in your life that are not going to go as you dreamed and hoped and planned. In my own life, the biggest disappointments in my life have been tools in the hands of the Holy Spirit to chisel away my dependence on things that never had the ability to hold the weight of my identity to begin with. I still carry the pain from them. I still carry the heartbreak from them. But I also see that he is setting me free from the need for my circumstances to be different in order for me to be happy. And that, my friends, is power. True contentment is not the disassociation of what you want in life. It is the power to have a joy and resilience that is above it. And like all of the instructions in the way of Jesus, it is to set us free. I mentioned Rome earlier and told you to put a pin in that, so here we go. Here's why Rome is so significant. So Paul's big desire, his one thing he wanted, does anybody know? He wanted to get to Rome. He wanted to get to Rome because it was the capital of pretty much the world at the time, and he wanted to be able to share the gospel in Rome. This was his burning desire to proclaim Jesus in the city of Rome, and it was a really good one. I mean, to be candid, most of my deep soul-level desires, not so Jesus-centered. Not really. Not like Paul. Paul is all about Jesus in his desires. But here he has setback after setback, a shipwreck, a snake bite, beaten, a torture. I mean, the man went through so much just trying to get to Rome. And then he finally does. And then he's thrown in prison. House arrest to be more precise. And he stays in house arrest until he's executed. Why would God deny his servant, who he set apart to share the gospel to the Gentiles, 
who were in Rome, by the way, and this servant who has this deep desire to get to the capital to proclaim Christ, why would he tell him no? How does that even seem fair? Well, it happens this way because God had a bigger plan. Because while Paul was in house arrest, he wrote Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, Galatians, Philemon, 1 and 2 Corinthians, and Romans. See, God was giving him the desire of his heart, but in a way that he didn't have the perspective to see. Paul died without being able to see how it all tied together. But Paul didn't feel like it was a waste because he knew that the God who was all-powerful and all-loving was also all-wise and sovereign. That the desire of his heart would not go to waste. In fact, because he made Jesus his aim, because he made knowing Jesus his aim, Paul was able to see this setback as something in the perspective of God's big picture, not only for his life, but the kingdom. Listen, there are things in your life that are going to knock the wind out of you. You're going to feel not only disappointed, but like it's a big setback, a betrayal. And you're not going to see why in the moment. In fact, you may not see why for a very long time. There will be things in your life that don't make sense. And you might be in one of those now, where it just feels like the one thing you want is the one thing that it seems God is going to withhold. But if you are united to God by faith, the same God who promised to work it all together for your good is the same God whose promises are a gigantic yes over your life, 2 Corinthians 1 says, and God always keeps his promises. What's the secret to contentment that Paul found? It was deeper than his circumstances. The secret to contentment is that Paul had already found the one thing in life worth living for. And that means that even the best gifts that God gives you in this life were never intended to satisfy you and give you life, much less confer significance and identity and worth. It means that you are free from the futility of looking to God's gifts for ultimate fulfillment. If, 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 if you make knowing him your aim. See, when you already have the one whom everything is pointing towards, when you already have the fullness that comes from being united to the one you were made to know, you don't lack anything. If you hear nothing else, hear this. If Jesus is everything that he says he is, and eternity is everything that he says it is, then there is no person, there is no position, there is no prestige worth forfeiting your purpose in his kingdom. So what is your aim? Some of you need to change your aim. Who doesn't? Some of you are realizing that you need a course correction in your aim. First, sit in that. Don't rush through it. Let the Holy Spirit do his work in you. Call it like it is. Scripture calls it an idol. 
but don't, don't try to hit the fast-forward button on it. You can't fight what you won't face. So what is the aim of your life? What's been driving you? Aiming to know Christ, not a one-and-done thing. I wish it was. I wish it was just a one-time decision, you check a box, and then you never have to struggle it again. No, Paul said, he didn't just say he decided to make Christ his aim, he says he aims. This is a constant thing. If you find that it's a fight, that doesn't mean that you're losing. It means you're human. It means every day you are choosing who you are going to live for and what your aim is going to be. Some of you, by the way, are aiming uh, at less than knowing Jesus because you don't actually know Jesus. Uh, you might have prayed a prayer when you were little. You got baptized. You know all the right answers. You came to Crystal College for crying out loud, but you've never actually had a conversion to Christ. I want you to know he is waiting with compassion, whether you are outside his family or in it. He is waiting with compassion. He came for spiritually sick people. He came for sinners. And if that's where you are also, don't run away from it. Don't try to stuff that down. Wherever you are, whatever your aim is, let the Holy Spirit has, have his appointment with you. Let him do his work. Because the truth is, we're all aiming at something. So here it is again. The one question that's going to determine how you live the rest of your life. What is your aim? Let me pray for you, Father. Thank you for these young souls. These lives full of idealism, direction, hope. I pray, Lord, that you would remind them they don't have to have the next few years figured out. They only have to have the right aim. You will guide them. You will direct them. I pray, Lord, that you would sit with us as we ask the difficult question of what has been our aim? What have we been aiming towards? And would you set us free from every lesser aim so that not only we can live in your joy, but we can live being the, the men, the women that you intended and created us to be. Lord, we want to be everything that you thought when you dreamed us up. And we know that we can do that only when we have knowing you as our aim. Thank you for loving us. Thank you that the truth of your word applies to every pain in our heart and struggle in our soul. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Y'all join me in thanking Dr. McCoy for her message. Thank you, Dr. McCoy. Excellent job. Thank you. And uh, we're going to get a couple of chairs up here. I'm going to uh, sort of front load this question for you to begin with. And then if any of you all have a question you'd like Thank to ask, you. of course, raise your hands, get a mic to you, and uh, uh, we'll give you an opportunity to ask uh, Dr. McCoy or interact with her directly. So, uh, Dr. McCoy, um, I know you're not a crusader on, uh, the, on, on some uh, feminist journey or something mm, like that. Mm -hmm. You're the opposite of that. <laughs> uh, and everyone knows that. Everyone knows that about you. But I also know that in terms of higher education, mm -hmm. the fact that you got a PhD, I mean, my favorite professor in my undergrad work was Mrs. Ann Miller. 
uh, she could not get a Ph.D. Hmm. because she wasn't allowed into the program. And everybody at Baylor knew she was the best professor in the English department. But programs weren't open to PhDs then. You have a PhD, not, and, and it's from, if I under, if I heard correctly, Southwestern Seminary, Southwestern mm -hmm. Seminary, which I don't know whether you ever noticed or not, but is sort of dominated by men, uh, <laughs> or had been at least historically. So uh, what I want to ask first is this: It hasn't been your campaign to do something, you know, uh, you know, to contradict that or something. Did you face some challenges? that were unique as a woman going through the educational system, you get your PhD, or in denominational life, which is mm -hmm. also dom dominated often by men. Mm -hmm. uh, did you face some challenges? And uh, you know, what was, the, what was the, the place where you found strength to sort of get through those? And so whatever you think. That's a great question. So first, I had a lot of support in my educational journey. And uh, there's a concept for women in business called, uh, I think it's a book called Don't Find a Mentor, Find a Sponsor. And that's really valuable advice. So it's not that you need a, a mentor, like a professor. You need someone who is in your corner, is going to help train and coach you, and um, help open doors that you couldn't get open by yourself. And, and I had a lot of that um, with my uh, dissertation supervisor, especially, who just helped introduced me not only to academic life, but helped open doors that I couldn't have knocked down on my own. Um, I had a very positive experience. I think the biggest challenge, though, was this. The dreaded question when I did a Master of Divinity and then a doctorate in systematic theology was, what are you going to do with that? Because our brothers typically have very clear career paths ahead of them, and those come with uh, clearly defined titles like pastor, missionary, that type of thing. And so for me, I'm like, well, I know I'm not going to be a pastor. What am I going to do with that? And what you need to know is that most people, if they're being honest, they don't really know what they're going to do with their degrees anyway. A lot of times, uh, some of the, the, the people who went through seminary and had this very clear-cut understanding of what they were going to do, sometimes they had the toughest times going through uh, just when something threw a wrench in that because they had a, a clearly defined path. Nothing was going to deviate them from that. And the Lord can move us in so many different ways. But that question of what are you going to do with that, let me just free you. You don't have to know what you're going to do with that. God knows what you're going to do with that. If he is leading you, giving you the opportunity for higher education, pursue it. Nobody regretted getting more education. It's something my dad always told me growing up. So go for it. You're not going to be back at this season of life to go for it. You don't have to have anything else figured out beyond that. Um, so many times uh, what we run into with that question, too, is the idea that education is for some type of vocation or professional sphere when education is about preparing you to be a resource for other believers. At least that's what theological education should be. It should be your preparation so that you are a resource that other people may not have access to have the education that you have gotten. Thank you very much. Uh, we have microphone runners, right? Do we? Okay, very good. So if you uh, have a question, get your hand in the air, and uh, we'll give you an opportunity to ask. Behind you, Jocelyn. Uh, there you go. Thank you very much. 
Hi, I just want to say thank you for your message first. And I was kind of wondering, this is sort of with the women in ministry question. Um, you're here at Criswell College sharing the gospel with all of us. And I was curious, what is your response to the people who have the argument that women should only share the gospel with other women and children? Hmm, that's a good question. So the woman at the well in... L- let me just say, did sure. y'all hear the question? Were y'all able to understand? That? Okay, very Okay, good. the woman at the well in John 4. We do not see either of two things. We do not see the Lord telling her... Uh, some type of restriction on who she should share the gospel with. Um, And then we also don't see when it says she went into the town that she only spoke to half of the town, the women. So uh, there's there's a difference between proclamation, sharing the gospel, which is the Great Commission, or at least the first half of the Great Commission. We also see at the end of Matthew... 28, we do not see that the Lord tells men only uh, share the gospel with women, or gospel with men, women only share the gospel with women. In other words, uh, we we don't have that type of gendered restriction in the Great Commission. So it it really is, um, I would say, adding to the Word of God. Uh, Now, if you want to get into questions about a woman being a pastor, having the responsibility of an elder, that's different. But, but the, the actual nature of proclaiming the gospel, we see that uh, not only women disciples were proclaiming the gospel to both men and women, we have the Great Commission. Um, here's, here's some things to think about. Can women baptize? Should they? Um, Great Commission is for both men and women, so I would say yes. Amen. Thank you uh, for asking that question. If anybody else has a question, we've got a hand uh, up right down here. Uh, on your way there, I'm just going to make this uh, quick statement, quick question. Trigger alert, I'm about to take a cheap shot. Uh, I'm sure what you just said is why you've been able to speak uh, in chapel over at Southwestern several times <laughs> since you graduated. Yeah, you know, you know no, it's okay. You know, in fact, some people have asked me kind of how do I determine that because it's an ongoing debate and so much of it is that we're trying to apply first century early church to our modern context. So here's my personal line. This is just where between me and the Lord, um, wherever uh, the ordinances would be rightly administered, I consider that my boundary. Very so, good. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for answering that. Hey, uh, Dr. McCoy, thank you so much for being here. Um, so last year, I actually got uh, a recommendation for your podcast, which is Theology and the Raw, right? Is that is that you? I was a guest on it. You were a guest on it. Okay, but yeah. Yes, it's not um, mine. Oh, it's not yours. Okay, no. yeah. You were on there, though, and um, I really, really enjoyed um, your discussion on that. So thank you. I just I wanted to say, could you please plug that so that the other students know about that? And, oh, and, thank and you. Get, go, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. theology in the raw is the podcast for a theologian named Preston Sprinkle. I've been on a couple of times. I was on with my co-author of that textbook. Um, and we talked about that, that, that it's literally a doctrine of humanity textbook. I promise I tried to make it interesting. We tried, but it's a textbook. Um, and so just, you know, know that. But then I, uh, he invited me back to talk about my research area, which is on Old Testament laws about women. And um, we talk about them 
well, we don't talk about them all. I talk about them all in different settings and, and the laws about childbirth, the laws about uh, she got married and he accused her of not being a virgin, so he's trying to get rid of her, all of those laws and what uh, God's law actually demonstrates of the protection for the most vulnerable women in society through Old Testament law. It is absolutely remarkable. I, so thank you for listening. Yeah, I wish we had the whole time just to talk about the Old Testament laws and how they interact. Anybody else have a question? We have time for one more if anybody else wants to ask, and uh, this will be the last one. So, oh, we got, maybe we'll squeeze in two. So we'll get one. <laughs> so go right ahead. Hello, thank you for coming. I uh, just wanted to ask if you had any, like, tips or anything you'd like to say to women who want to pursue higher education. Yes. I kind of think about, like, myself. I'm a first-gen student, and um, I haven't really seen... I've seen women here who are professors and a few other places, but really seeing women in high higher education is new, and it's encouraging. So um, is there anything you'd like to say or tips or encouragement? Yes. One, go for it. Go for as much as you can. Um, as early as you can. Um, and then also uh, recognize that there, if you have anybody that would ever, I don't think this would really happen, but hopefully it doesn't. If you have anybody that is kind of looking at you like, why are you here? Uh, especially if it's some type of theological education, just know um, you don't answer to him. You answer to the Lord. So you have a calling. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You are an equal image bearer of the of the image of God you have uh, in a mind that God does not intend for you to waste and so your your calling is uh, you are to submit to the Lord and his word but you don't have anything to prove and 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 so sadly I, I think a lot of women they they have a chip on their shoulder and they think they have to prove something to somebody else and that's just still letting other people's opinions control you just do it to serve the Lord do it out of joy out of loving the Lord with all of your mind and then the last thing I'll say to every woman if you want to get anywhere in life get rid of upspeak this is just a personal tip what is upspeak upspeak is uh, and then I went to class, and it was really good, and I learned a lot. You know what I'm talking about? Get rid of that. Get rid of that. Speak like a woman, not a girl. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to try to quit speaking like a girl. <laughs> um, chapel, it was really good. and. Um, <laughs> Thank you for the challenge. Yes. Uh, one more right here. Hi. Um, I just want to know more about your book, To Be a Woman. Mm -hmm. uh, more so, why did you write it? Thank you. Yes. So the book, To Be a Woman, I promise if you are a guy, there's no shame in reading it. It is not a biblical womanhood book. And uh, if, I could, if I could go back and change some of the title, I would because I think it's a little confusing. It is all on gender confusion and why it is affecting a generation of young girls and uh, young women as well. So I wrote it because I was talking with a friend who works at this publishing uh, office and she said, you know, we have a need for someone to write something on this topic. And I thought, no problem. I've been teaching on this for about seven years. I bet I can crank something out. She goes, great. Can you write it in two months? Let's give it a shot. Worst thing I ever tried to do. I do not recommend trying to write a book in, in two months. I was able to do it in 10 weeks. Um, and I realized that the research that I had was like a pinky fingers worth of what is really out there. So 
The book covers why so many people your age are struggling with gender confusion. Not only the social media influence of it, but the ideological, philosophical influence of it. Then there's a whole chapter, might be my favorite one, on the uh, biological differences between male and female, not the obvious ones, by the way, beginning in neurological differences, starting at the eighth week in utero. There are differences between you as a man and a woman and it just talks about the complexity of how God created us in his image. Um, I do recommend it for you, not just as a shameless plug, but if you're going to do ministry in this context, you're going to have to know about this issue and a lot of the questions that it comes up to the surface over it. Amen. Uh, Y'all give uh, thanks to Dr. McCoy one more time. And uh, I'll just say my, my prayer is we'll be in an environment where we're supporting each other and figuring out the end that God has for each of us and that he has for us together. God bless you. Go with him as you go for the rest of the day. Thank you once again for listening to the Criswell College Chapel Podcast. Please make sure to visit criswell.edu to learn more about Criswell College. We hope that you will join us again soon. God bless you.